that Christ, you are ours forevermore, and indeed you are our only hope, and you is our righteousness. We have hope because our righteousness is in you, and it is a gift from God, and it is something that secures our eternal future, which is not one of separation and judgment, but one of joy and worship and beauty and holiness and goodness. All the things that our hearts have been made to love as they're reflected and bound in your own glory and nature, particularly as revealed in Christ. So even as we come to your word this morning, may we taste some of that. May we see you afresh as we look at you and your message to the church at Philadelphia. Instruct us, teach us, encourage us, and in all things, exalt your name above all else. And we pray this again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Believe it or not, we are moving on to the next church here in these messages of Christ to the seven churches. Uh, And so we come this morning to the church at Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia. And we have titled this series, which, uh, you know, who knows how long it will be. But we have titled it, Philadelphia, the Church of the Open Door. The Church of the Open Door. And that comes right directly from Christ's message to the church itself. Now, interestingly, there is a church of the open door, which is the actual name of a church. It was a church that was uh, founded around 1915 by R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was an evangelical scholar, author, and pastor who accomplished a lot of things in his life. He was very used of the Lord, but he was particularly passionate about evangelism and about uh, being a light for Christ in a dark world. And so he was the original pastor of this church of the open door. And at a core element of their mission was to, again, be a light in a dark place there in the city of Los Angeles to be a witness to the gospel and the fact that Jesus saves. In fact, there were some landmarks attached to that church, which were big signs that said, uh, Jesus saves. And although he was a gifted scholar, he was dean of Biola. Some of you all might be familiar with that name out in California. It's a, it's a university. It stands for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Uh, now a, a, a school that's uh, well known. Uh, but again, his heart was evangelism, and his favorite phrase was reported as being, I love to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, true to this mission, the church, which began with approximately around early, in its early years, 1400, grew to fill up the auditorium in which it was located, which was about 4,000 seats. It began Sunday schools that reached many people, various outreaches, and it strongly emphasized personal evangel- evangelism and missions. And indeed, that was the character of this church, as many are reported to have come to a saving knowledge of Christ uh, through their mission. Uh, Some of y'all might be familiar with the name J. Vernon McGee, uh, which uh, was also a pastor at this church after R.A. Torrey moved on. Uh, Funny story with J. Vernon McGee, my mom used to listen to him on the radio, and uh, she was sharing that with me and uh, my roommate at the time many years ago. And he informed her that actually he had died years before, and uh, so she could stop praying now. And uh, he had received his healing. But anyway, J. Vernon McGee was a pastor there and known to be a a teacher of the Bible. 
Well, again, the church grew, became effective witness for Christ, but eventually moved to its present location in Glendora, California. But the name of the church, the Church of the Open Door, was based on two passages of Scripture. One is found in John chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And in Revelation 3.8 was the second passage, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. And that, of course, is where we'll find ourselves, that passage, in these coming weeks. The first passage speaks of Christ as the only way of salvation. And the second passage speaks of Christ as the sovereign Lord over the gospel, both sovereign over its proclamation and sovereign over its effects. Well, let's read the message and then we'll begin our look at it. Beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And thus is his message to the church at Philadelphia. And so we want to begin our look at this message of Christ to the church at Philadelphia as we begin with each of the churches by understanding the context of the people to whom he's writing, the the city and the culture uh, that the church found itself in, in the city of Philadelphia. So let's note the context of the church. Again, he is writing to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Geographically, it was known as the gateway to the east. It sat on a major trade route that bordered three different countries, Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. As such, it was determined to be an important center for the spread of Hellenistic culture. Now, just as a side note there, you'll find that with each of these seven churches in some way, because they were major cities, and Paul often established his ministry in a major city, because there this gospel could go out more easily, and uh, there was travel, and people would come, and people would go. There was more opportunity to hear the gospel. And this is significantly so, even more than the others in many ways, at the Church of Philadelphia, because of its unique location. And as noted, it was determined in its early founding uh, to be an ideal location for the spread of Hellenistic culture. Now, that's Greek culture. Uh, One uh, historian said this, The intention of its founder was to make it a center of the Greco-Asiatic civilization and a means of spreading the Greek language and manners in the eastern part of Lydia and uh, Freon. It caused it to be dubbed by one historian as a missionary city, as a missionary city. 
Of course, not missionary in the sense of we think of missionaries with the gospel of Christ, but a missionary, again, of Greek language, Greek culture, Greek knowledge, Greek gods, and all of those kind of things. And it's very likely that it, this identity of the city is, plays into Christ's identification or statement to the church that I have set before you an open door. That is an open door of opportunity for the ministry of the gospel. It was also geographically located near a volcano, and so it was rich in volcanic soil, and it was particularly suited for grapes. That was its main agricultural industry, is that it grew uh, grapevines, and so not surprisingly, its patron deity was the deity of wine. Uh, but it also meant that it was prone to earthquakes, and it suffered from the infamous one that we mentioned in relation to Smyrna back in AD 17, and like Smyrna, it also received help from Rome to rebuild. Uh, but because it was prone to earthquakes, it made it actually a, a kind of a somewhat of a dangerous place to live. And again, one, another historian, an ancient historian, gives this description of it. Beyond the Lydians, there were the Mysians in the city of Philadelphia, full of earthquakes. For the walls never cease being cracked, and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants. So a lot of people lived outside of the town proper, out into the fields and the farmlands uh, around it. Uh, but the majority live as farmers in the countryside as they have fertile land. But one is surprised even at the few that they are so fond of the place when they have such insecure dwellings. And one would even be more amazed at those who founded it. And in fact, this is very likely behind an allusion of Christ's statement that you will go out no more. We'll cover these in detail when we get to them. Because they used to go out from the city at every little tremor, it was the pattern of the people observed, that they would kind of run out of the city and run out to get to an open space. Um, if any of you have ever been in Los Angeles during an earthquake, uh, you know that that is exactly what happens. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I had lived in Los Angeles for about not even a year, I think, when I moved there, when the Northridge earthquake hit and destroyed the building I was in. And I can remember looking out the window and seeing the people huddled in the street and and so forth. And so it was here with this city. That was a common occurrence. But in Christ's statement, he shall go out no more, it is a statement of assurance to give them, a, to, to bolster them with any uh, possibility of fear because of the persecution that they were having to know that, in fact, he has them firmly in his hand. Uh, in terms of its general history, it's one of the newest cities of all of the cities that he's addressed in these uh, seven addresses from Christ, these seven churches, possibly established most likely around the second century B.C. Uh, by one of two uh, Greek rulers, either Attalus or his brother Eumenes. Uh, however, the name Philadelphia comes uh, not from them, obviously, uh, their proper names, but interestingly from their relationship. Uh, the name Philadelphia, as many of y'all know, stands for brotherly love, uh, brotherly love. Uh, and interesting, just as a footnote, and I, I learned this uh, from uh, Oscar Garcia as we were talking about this, uh, that the city Philadelphia that they recently visited drew its name from this. It was a Puritan founder earlier in that city who wanted to identify with this idea of brotherly love to say that in order for that city to be successful, there needed to be that kind of unity and cooperation even under the gospel. 
So anyway, it received its name, however, because of the unique relationship between these two uh, brothers. They were legendarily loyal to each other. They were actually two of four, but it is these two brothers, Eumenes and Attalus, who were known for their acts of loyalty to one another. Two stories are often cited as demonstrating this. One comes from, uh, is said to have taken place in 172 B.C., and one author describes it briefly and summarizes it in this way. When a false rumor of Eumenes' assassination in Greece had reached Pergamum and Attalus accepted it and assumed the kingship, Eumenes on his return forgave him and Attalus resumed his secondary position. So what normally would have happened or often would have happened in those cases is there would have been an ensuing battle for power, uh, a battle with each other and it would have come to war and and other kind of harm, but they're not so with them because of their loyalty and because of their mutual affection for one another. He gladly put aside that kingship and took second place. A second uh, account is given of the loyalty of Attalus. Uh, one author states it this way. In 168 or 67 uh, BC here, Attalus was representing his brother at Rome when Eumenes was under suspicion of correspondence with the enemy Persis. Persis. He almost succumbed to pressure to challenge or supplant his brother with Roman help, but reminded that the kingdom fraternal stare concordia, which is the, uh, the idea of fraternal stand of harmony or agreement, he finally refused. Thereafter, he resisted constant Roman efforts to turn him against Eumenes and finally succeeded him upon his death. So those are two well-known stories in the ancient world of their loyalty to one another. And it is from that loyalty, it is from that brotherly love, it is from that commitment and that family unity that they experienced that it received its name, Philadelphia. Interestingly, even though that is the name that endured, it, it, it had two name changes in its history. One came after the earthquake in A.D. 17 because Rome was again very generous, as he was at Smyrna, with rebuilding the city. And they were given essentially five years tax-free living, and that gave them the resources to reestablish uh, themselves. And in honor of that kindness from Rome, they renamed the city Neo Caesarea. Uh, it didn't last for uh, long, and Philadelphia became the, remained the dominant name, but nonetheless, uh, that's what they did. And then on another occasion, in honor of Emperor Vespusian, uh, they named it Flavia. Again, uh, that name didn't last long. Philadelphia was the dominant one, but they knew that experience. And it's very likely, again, that Jesus is making a play on that historical reality when he says to them, I will give to you a new name. I will write them on, on them a new name. Interestingly. Now, religiously... The patron city's deity uh, is most commonly recognized as Dionysus, who was known, uh, again, as the god of wine. But really, it had a plethora of deities. And, and in fact, although that's true, really, they were polytheistic cultures, so that was true of many of the cities. But it was uniquely true in Philadelphia. In fact, it earned it the nickname or the title Little Athens because of all of this. You'll remember Paul going in there. I see you have you know, deities and temples and worship of, of all kinds. Well, that also became an identified with the city of Philadelphia. Interestingly, with all of the temples that dotted the land and the city within those temples... 
they had a habit of writing on the pillars of each of them the names of prominent magistrates, priests, and other uh, civil uh, uh, representatives of that culture who did some kind of great deed, and their name was written on the temple. And again, it's very likely that that historical illusion is behind Christ's promise in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Assuring that the security that a believer has in Christ is not temporary and passing away like those who are honored on pagan temples, but it is a part in the eternal presence of God and the eternal kingdom of God. Now, there was not a large Jewish population there. Historically, there's uh, no evidence of that as, as uh, in contrast to Sardis, in which there was a very large population. But as with Smyrna, the population of Jews that were there were significant, uh, a significant factor in the opposition and the suffering that they endured. And so he uses, borrows the phrase again, as he did with Smyrna, that there was a synagogue of Satan unbelieving Jews, Jews that were hostile to the Christians uh, in that area. And in fact, and we'll again look at this more down the road, but their rejection of the Christians may have likely amounted to their, uh, their, their refusal to let them be identified with the Jewish population and therefore be spared from the wrath of the imperial cult. In other words, uh, the Jews had a special protection where they didn't have to give on to emperor worship. And Christians were protected by that early on. Uh, but later, when they became identified as a separate group, uh, they were persecuted on their own right and not afforded the same protection. And it's likely some of that is what's going on here. Uh, an ancient writer, another old writer from the second century named Ignatius, he actually wrote some famous letters. It's uh, some early church history that we have. And one of those letters was to Philadelphia. And he, even in the second century, uh, acknowledged that there was a strong presence of Judaizers in that area and even makes an argument that an early ancient heresy uh, known as Montanism really found uh, a platform there and its foundation maybe even sourced out of there. So it had uh, a lot of not only pagan worship, not only Jewish resistance, but even with the church itself, it had to battle against error. And yet, Christ commends them for their faithfulness. He commends this church with such hostile odds against them for their commitment and their holding fast to the truth and to the gospel. And indeed, the titles that he will give, which we'll look at in just a moment, assure them that the one they have trusted, they're rejected by many, they're rejected by the Jews, is in fact the true Lord, the secure one, the one who is real as opposed to those false deities of their culture, as opposed to the rejection of the Jews, of Jesus as a false Messiah, he is in fact the true Messiah, the promised Messiah, the true God, true Savior, and Lord. So that's a general picture of the context of the church and the city in Philadelphia. Let's note what he says next, the character of Christ that is identified. He says, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, interestingly, as with the other churches, often the description of Christ has a connection with the original vision that Christ gave to John. Uh, not so here. This is unique to the church of Philadelphia, that he is giving an independent witness to his character, independent in the sense of not directly attached to that one vision. And he is described in the most magnificent and amazing terms. It's a threefold description that communicates his nature as sovereign ruler. 
a sovereign ruler over the nations and over his church. Let's just consider it. Look at what he says first. He who is holy. He who is holy. This is a fundamental description of the nature of God. When we speak of holiness, we're speaking of what makes God God and everything else in the universe not God. We're speaking of the distinction between the creator and the creature, the creator and all created things, the only one ever who could give his name as I am. He is holy. It is what Christ by nature as the eternal son is and is reflected even through his exalted humanity. Now, interestingly, this term here, which you might be familiar with, it's a noun, hagios, is most often used in Revelation in reference to God's people, those who belong to Christ. It's the term that's translated throughout the New Testament as saints, as saints. Some of the translations may even have the holy ones or a little note in the margin to say holy ones. And so Christians are throughout Scripture, in particular in Revelation, called the Holy Ones, the Holy Ones. That is a description of those who fall down before the throne in Revelation 5.8. It's a description in 8.3 of the saints who are offering prayers that are collected and presented before God on the mighty altar. He says, another angel came and stood to the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayer of all the saints, the holy ones, on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And that's repeated many, many times. We won't go through all of those references. It speaks of what we are as Christians by virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of our position in Christ. It encompasses the idea of justification, but it speaks as well of being set apart from the world and into Christ. We are counted in Christ. We are in union with Christ. We are bound to the life of Christ in every way. Christ, who is our life, is the foundation of our being identified as saints as holy ones it is what we are by grace it is what he is by nature it also speaks as well of the coming Jerusalem in 11.2 it's called the holy city and it's used once to speak of the holy angels in 14.10 the elect angels angels that were chosen not to fall but preserved in their righteousness before God their original created righteousness Now, most significantly, however, this is a key designation of God throughout Scripture, and again, even in significant points in Revelation. A title for God in the Old Testament, one that came with the utmost reverence, with the utmost glory, with the most profound respect, was that God is the Holy One, that God is the Holy One. It was a significant title for God. When God placed himself against the false worship and the idols of the nations, he identified himself as the Holy One. The Holy One. Let me just give you a few examples of this. In Isaiah chapter 40, this great chapter marking this revelation of God through the prophet Isaiah of the future salvation and glory of his people, He says this in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, in verse 25. He says, To whom then will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. 
the Holy One. They were in the midst of a land of idols. He'll address that many times in these chapters in Isaiah. They were amidst of all faults in the land of false deity, false worship. In fact, uh, because they were the ones who were prisoners, the idea was that your God is not as strong as our gods. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were humbled. They were ashamed. And yet God reminds them that the God who is their God is the Holy One. Is the Holy One. He uses that again. In Isaiah 43, verse 15, when he is assuring them that his promises will come about, that nothing can thwart his purposes, he says in verse 15, I am the Lord Yahweh there. Uh, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. In other words, I am the one who has spoken and I will bring it about. I am the Creator of Israel. Indeed, he is the Creator of the ends of the earth. Something else he will appeal to you. Throughout, So to say that God is the Holy One is to mark him out as the one who is God as opposed to everything else which is not God. He is the Holy One. In 4, 8, chapter 4, verse 8 of Revelation, it is the anthem of the angels, drawing also from Isaiah. And day and night, he says in verse 8, you do not cease to say, and here it is in reference primarily to the Father, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This, you will recognize, is the anthem or the praise that comes from the angelic beings in Isaiah 6.3 in the vision that was given to Isaiah when he entered into the temple and he saw the Lord high and exalted in the train of his robe, filling it and spilling out and these angels that were flying around him, two covering their eyes, two their feet, two they flew and it says they kept crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. You may also remember that that very imagery of the exalted Lord is explicitly identified as the pre-incarnate Christ in John chapter 12 verse 40. The pre-incarnate son. Although he did not fully understand the implications of it at the time the Spirit revealed to him, Peter affirms this as the identity of Christ in John 6, 69. When John says, Jesus said, you do not want to go away also when the crowds were leaving him because of the hard teaching. And Peter said, to whom will we go? You have the words of life. And he includes in this proclamation that we know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One. It's an amazing statement of his divine glory. It is a title of Christ that attended the very beginning of the preaching of the gospel in the message of, in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, after the, 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 the apostles who were faithful witnesses to Christ were being persecuted, they were taken to uh, the Jews by the Jews, they were... They were accused, they were beaten, and they left celebrating that they could suffer for the name of Christ. And rather than breaking their spirit, it emboldened them. And it says in verse 25 that they sort of actually beginning in verse 24, they acknowledge that the Lord is the one who made the earth, or the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They said, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples divine of vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together, quoting here from Psalm 2, against the Lord and against his Christ. And he says, what, who were they against? 
Who were they against? They were against the Holy One, the Holy Jesus. In verse 30, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. And indeed, lastly, just one mark here, one more note here. In Mark, it was the very proclamation of the demons when they came in contact with Jesus as he walked the earth and they were confronted with the very presence of God in the person of Christ and they came and the demon in Mark 1:24 comes and says this interestingly even in terms of the title of the synagogue of Satan Jesus is in a synagogue at this point And it says in verse 23, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, Be quiet and come out of him. The point is, is this is a statement of glory. It is a statement of divine nature. It is a statement of power. It is a statement of sovereignty. It is a statement that belongs and can be applied only to one who shares in the divine glory of God, the nature of God. Here, the Son. He says he is holy. He is holy. Uh, Both of these are given holy and true in one place in chapter 6, verse 10 of Revelation as well. Well, let's just consider this briefly more, just to remind you of some things you know. What does it mean, then, to say he's holy? It means he is sovereign, yes. It means he is God and everything else is not. It speaks, then, of his, primarily of his otherness and his purity. Of his otherness and his purity. And you may have often heard that the, the key idea in the term itself is to be separate. But separate from what? Well, when it's in reference to religious context, and that could even be in pagan religions. But if we think even of Israel in terms of persons and objects, they were holy because they were set apart for a specific use in the worship of God and in the service of God. So pans were holy, utensils were holy, priests were holy, and so on and so forth. In that sense, they were set apart to the unique purpose of the worship of God. But when the term is used in reference to God and to who he is in his nature, it has two fundamental ideas, the idea of separation. It means his otherness. It speaks of his transcendence. It means that God is holy and that he is separate from his creation. He is not a part of his creation. He is not bound to his creation. He stands outside of his creation. He is in Isaiah 57, 15, the high and the holy one. God is not like us. God is infinite. God is infinitely glorious, infinitely powerful, infinitely present, and so on and so forth. He is of a nature that is distinct from ours. It is to say he is holy in that sense, and he is the only one in all of the universe then that can bear that designation. But it also means that he is holy morally, spiritually, and that he is separate from sin, and it speaks of his purity. So in a wonderful statement by John in John 1, 5, it says that he is light 
And in him is no darkness at all. That means that sin has no part in God. Nothing evil, nothing defective, nothing weak, nothing corrupt has any place within the nature of God. He is absolutely, infinitely, forever and eternally and unshakably holy and pure and separate from sin. Nothing could ever be charged against him. He is indeed the very standard of everything that is good and beautiful and righteous and so on and so forth. So to say that he is holy is something that God alone can possess. It's something that's inherent to his own nature. It's something that alone can describe God. And as I said, it is what makes God God and everything else not God. Everything else not him. He alone can bear this title and here Jesus applies it to himself. He is holy. He is the transcendent one by his nature and yet... The glorious reality and truth of the holiness of God is that as the creator of not only all things visible in the universe, but of man uniquely in his image, it means that his transcendence was also brought, or his nature, his person was brought near also to those he created to have fellowship with him. And so he created man in his image. And so Isaiah 15, 57, 15 goes on to say, he is the high and the holy one, and yet he is near to those who are broken and contrite in heart. And yet he's near to those who truly know him. And the epitome of this is Christ, who even though he existed in the form of God, even though he is the eternal word, is the one who took on flesh and came near. And so all of this is here. He is holy. He is holy. And he is true. And he is true. In one sense, these are the same. For him who is holy, and he who is holy, he who is utterly separate from sin, could not be untrue. He could not lie. In Titus 1, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. Simply an affirmation that God can never act contrary to his own nature. So here it says he is true. He is true. But he means more than just that he cannot lie. He means more than that here. In fact, Christ uses a specific term. There are two basic terms that are translated in the New Testament as true. And while in one sense, and I'll note here, these, there was uh, some overlap in these terms. And, and it's even argued that the term that he uses here was on its way out as in, with this particular nuance. But nonetheless, it is very often, even within the pages of Scripture and at the time of writing at this historical period, uh, these nuances were generally maintained. Not absolutely every time in every case, but generally maintained. And that is this. The first term that's often translated as true... Uh, is the term aletheis, and it has the idea of true in contrast to what is false. True and not a lie. Uh, true and not deceptive is the idea there. So just to give you one example of that idea, in John 5.31, Jesus says this. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. In John 5.31, he says this. If I alone testify myself, testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And there he's saying it can be counted as being not right, not real, a lie, deception, false. If I'm the only one bearing testimony, but then he goes on to say it's not just me. It is the Father who bears witness. It is the Spirit who bears witness. The very God and his works bear witness in that context. It also has, the, but the other term, which is the term used here, is alethinos. And it has the idea of what is genuine or the essence of something, what is genuine and real, the substance of what that thing is. 
The corollary here is not necessarily the contrast to what is false, but to what is incomplete. So, for example, in comparison to John the Baptist, this term is used in John chapter 1, 9, where it says that Jesus is the true light. It's not saying John the Baptist was false. It's saying, but he was not the light, the true light, which is shining in the world now, which is that is revealed in Christ and through Christ. In John 6.32, in comparison to the manna that was provided through Moses, Jesus says that he is the true bread from heaven. Not saying there was anything wrong with what was through Moses, but it was not the full picture. Jesus is the very essence of what that was meant to identify, that God is the provider of the sustenance of his people. In John 15.1, Christ is the true vine in this sense. He is the only source of spiritual life, spiritual reality, salvation, growth, and fruit is Christ. And so that's what he uses here. And interestingly, it's only this term that's used in Revelation, which may indicate that the emphasis here and throughout its other uses in Revelation is to show that this Christ, this Christ who is revealing himself to the churches and through the churches, this Christ who is the one who is the king over all of creation and will establish his kingdom is the only true God against everything else that's false. What is the very idea of the spirit of Antichrist is to bring what is false? What is the very source and the power and the growth of the false kingdom of the Antichrist is to deceive by a false prophet, is to have a kingdom which is built on everything that is opposed to the truth of God and in Christ. And it Maybe that this is even itself an indication of saying the one who speaks to you is the one who is, who is the one who is true, who is the one who will bring about his kingdom. Deception is no part in the kingdom of Christ, and it's what the very foundation of the kingdom of the Antichrist is. And he's saying he is the one who is true. He is the one who is real. He is the one who is genuine. And that certainly includes the other idea, of course, is he is the one who only speaks the truth and cannot lie. He is the one who only speaks the truth and never speaks what is false. So he is the one who is true. And so here, applied to the risen Christ, it has the force of identifying him as the only true revelation of God he is God and he carries out the will of God and is the very, indeed the very centerpiece of God's purposes in creation. And in relation to the situation at Philadelphia, it may have the dual effect of establishing him as the true Messiah against the charge of the Jews who said, no, he's not the Messiah. You have no part in us. We will not in any way participate with this false message that you're giving. And yet Christ is assuring them, no, he is the God of Jews and Gentiles. He is the promised Savior. But let's look at this last statement. And this is really what's going to introduce us into the, the coming message. He is holy. He is true. And he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. This is a statement of the absolute sovereignty of Christ over men and salvation. And this is a message that's important for us to hear. Christ is not a tepid savior waiting and hoping for men to trust in him. He's not up there anxious with bated breath waiting and hoping that men will honor him and believe in him. He is the one who stands supremely, gloriously sovereign over the gospel in terms of its proclamation and in terms of its effect. He is the sovereign Lord. 
He is the one who grants or withholds salvation. He is the one who gives opportunity or withholds opportunity. He is the one who invites repentant faith, but also determines to whom it is granted as well. It's simply to say he is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of all. Let's consider the statement. The first statement is really a further explanation of what he said in verse 18 of chapter 1. There it says that he is the living one. And he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. I determine life. Who has it and who it's taken from. Here he expands that to include the very opportunity to bear witness over him, of him and access into his kingdom. That's the idea of keys. He opens, no one will shut. He shuts and no one will open. Uh, where does he grab this from? So secondly, the statement actually comes from Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. And just for context's sake, I want to just briefly take you there. In Isaiah chapter 22, in the midst of God declaring his judgment on the various nations, uh, there's almost like a, a footnote in a sense in the flow of these judgments to the nations in which he addresses Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, whom at this point in Isaiah's revelation, is being warned of the coming calamity, the coming judgment that is going to be brought to them by God by God himself. And it's identified in verse 1 as the valley of vision. The valley of vision. And it is a message of their coming judgment. And essentially what he accuses them of throughout is that you are living in trust and putting your hope in other nations and you are rejecting me as your God. A common indictment by God towards his people. And not only that, but though you have seen my judgment on other nations, and though you are hearing the judgment and the calamity that's going to come to you, and you've seen testimonies of that, not only are you not fearing me, but you're giving yourself over even more to wanton pleasure, to disobedience. He says, regarding their false trust, in verse 11... He says, and you made a reservoir between two walls for the waters of the old pool. He's talking about how they were preparing themselves and trusting in their own strength for a coming invasion. He says, verse 11, but you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. In verse 8, if you go up, he says, in the defense of Judah, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. In other words, you've got this, this threat against you, and rather than turning to your true king and to your true God and to your covenant God, who is the one who rules over and protects and defends and provides for his people, you are trusting in yourselves. You're trusting in your own ingenuity. You're trusting in your own strength. And by doing that, you are essentially rejecting me. You are rejecting me. And so there's a valley of vision which may itself be a title of mockery which he describes in verse 5 is going to be a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion. Moreover, not only are they rejecting God as their defender, as noted, they're 
They're giving themselves more and more over into their fleshliness and their sin. Look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, in the day, in that day, the Lord God who calls you to weeping and wailing, to the shaving of the head and to wearing sackcloth, in other words, to some display of true repentance, instead there is gaiety and gladness and the killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep and the eating of meat and the drinking of wine, saying, let us eat and drink and tomorrow we die. In other words, if we're going to die anyway, let's satisfy our lust as much as we possibly can until the day comes. Again, it's just the defiance of their heart. Now, after giving this broad picture and indictment of them, he then comes in verse 15, and really, he's kind of particularizing, if you will, that kind of judgment and that, again, that indictment against the nation, that rebuke of them, in the person of Shebna. And Shebna, he says in verse 15, who is in charge of the royal household, who's in charge of the royal household. He's later called God's steward. God's steward. Now, interestingly, this exact term is used only here in the Hebrew Bible, but the sense seems to be by its use in other places that it's the idea of essentially like a prime minister in the king's palace. He has incredible authority. In fact, it likely describes him as the one who is second only to the king. Second only to the king. He has tremendous authority. But what is the problem with Shebna? Is that just like the nation of Israel, he's not concerned about God's purposes. He's only concerned with exalting himself. He says in verse 16, what right do you have here? And and whom do you have here? Which may be a reference to that he comes from an insignificant family. It may be the fact that he was a Gentile. But the point is, and most likely it is, that you have, because of the kind of person you are, no right for this position. Look at verse 16. You've hewn a tome for yourself there. You hew a tome in the heights, a place that was uh, reserved only for a truly exalted people and worthy people and honored citizens. You carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. But the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O oh man. He's about to grasp you firmly, roll you up tightly like a ball, and cast you into a vast country. You're seeking for yourself glory in this land? Well, guess what? Not only will you not have glory in this land, I'm going to cast you out of this land into a foreign place, and there you will know only shame and judgment, not glory. And the, and the indictment again here is this. That you're seeking your own interest and you're not seeking the interest of God. You are using your power for self-indulgence, for your own glory, and you're not for the good of his people. Now, in contrast to that, and here we get to the statement in Revelation. God says this in verse 20, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 22. And I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. And here that wonderful title, Eliakim, my servant, is in contrast to the self-serving attitude of Shebna. Eliakim will be truly concerned to do the will of God, to be faithful to his task for God's glory and for the good of God's covenant people. And he says in this wonderful statement about his genuine care for the people of God, at the end of verse 21, he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. That statement, he will be a father, certainly includes the idea of authority, but it includes rather, probably more so, the idea of his gentleness, his care. 
Uh, One said this commenting on that passage. This does not mean superiority or paternalism, but genuine care and self-sacrificing love. The garments that he wears, the sash uh, and so forth about him, and the tunic certainly reflects in some way the garments of the priest. But here it is the garb of a ruler, one with authority, one with preeminence politically, even within the house of the king. In other words, he stands in a position of authority. And the primary symbol of that authority is the key to the house of David on his shoulder. And in in the case of Eliakim, that likely has the the idea here that, that he is the one, because of his position of authority, who allows someone into the presence of the king, into the palace of king, or he denies them. Incredible authority. And there is connection here as well to messianic anticipation. Because even though he's given these tremendous titles and opportunity, he also is one who will fail. In fact, it even is said in verse 25, in that day declares the Lord, the peg driven in a firm place, which was previously to describe Eliakim, will give way, it'll break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And the idea is here, even with an exalted servant like Eliakim, the constant problem of the people of God is they're putting their hope in the wrong place. They're putting their hope in the wrong place. And men always fail. And just as a side note, that's a consistent pattern throughout all of Scripture. Every time God makes a promise and makes a significant promise, there is in the narrative of Scripture an example of that person's fall. Noah was given the covenant and then he's found drunk in his tent naked. Abraham was given a promise and then he's found fearing the kings, the Gentile kings, and lying about his wife. David is given the great Davidic covenant, and right after that is the record of his moral failure of adultery and murder. And that pattern goes on and on and on. And the point is that even the greatest of men are yet men. And that is not where we are to place our hope. Our hope is in the Lord who alone will accomplish his purposes and provide what he has promised. And so it is here in connection with the messianic anticipation by calling Eliakim my servant connects to that great promise of the servant, which we won't go through those passages, but in terms of the Messiah, culminates in his substitutionary death and resurrection in Isaiah 53. But here, skipping ahead, it applies to Christ. And he's saying, just like Eliakim of old had that authority over the house of David and allowed people to come in or or, or denied them to come into the presence of king. So the true epitome of that, the culmination of that, the reality of that is actually that position and authority that Christ holds as the exalted Messiah, king over his kingdom, who opens and and shuts and no one will open, which is to say that he has absolute authority over who participates and is a part of his kingdom. The, The key of David here speaks of all that is included in that promise and the Messiah as the son of David over the kingdom that God had promised, the kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of redemption, the kingdom of the prophets, and so forth. He allows or does not allow entrance. Now they would have recognized this throughout the gospel. Christ is the son of David, the promised son of David. 
Revelation speaks of him twice in that way as he's the epitome of it. He says in verse 5, he is the root of David. And in saying he's the root of David there is saying he is the only one then who has the right to open the seals out of which the judgment will begin on the earth. God's judgment. That's what it means to be at the root of David. To say he is the root of David, to say that he is the very essence of that, that promise of this coming Messiah is to say in verse 16 of chapter 22, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and the morning star, the one who's bringing the glorious kingdom culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. But the overarching idea is this, that he's reminding the church, and we'll connect with this more next week, but let me just mention it here, that Christ is sovereign over entrance into his kingdom. That's what he's saying He's connecting to Matthew 16, 19, when Jesus during his ministry on earth, where he said, I will build my kingdom, and where he gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom, which was, in that context, the very message of Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the fulfillment of God's purposes. It is the very reality that Jesus left his disciples with and us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Now go forth into the nations, baptizing them, discipling them. And he's saying that authority is mine. And as I send you out, you go not in your own cleverness and your own authority, but you go in my authority and the fruit of your work is determined by me who is the exalted one. Now, again, we'll talk more about that next week. But let me, just as we come into the table here, remind us of this. So much of the professing church treats Christ as if he were such kind of a wimpy savior, as if he were a sentimental kind of savior who died and is just waiting for people to believe in him. Watch the absolute infuriating silliness that goes on very often in the name of worship. And think to yourself, is this the Christ that is presented? The one who is sovereign Lord, the one whom he's not waiting for you to believe in him. He is allowing you to enter his presence in repentance and faith. And that itself is a gift. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign Lord over all. He stands as Lord over the church, over men, over salvation, over his kingdom, he is holy, he is true, he is sovereign, and he will give the fruit he has ordained, and he will build in the way that he wants to build. He is trustworthy, he alone is able, but again, he is also a willing savior to all who put their trust in him. Well, we'll pick it up there and unfold that a bit more next week. But as we come to the table, we who know the Lord Jesus Christ say that that is the Lord we're worshiping, a gracious Lord. A gracious Lord who, though sovereign and holy, has by his own suffering removed from us the penalty and the condemnation of our sin, who has provided for us through his blood atonement for our sin, washing and cleansing, who has given us a secure hope, who is a faithful God who will never leave us and who will never forsake us, and who has promised that he will bring us home safely to our eternal inheritance which is in him. And so as we come to the table, let's use it as a time to examine our own hearts. First, that we do have a relationship with him, that we are relying on him and committed to seeking his help to live for him in this world, to deal with sin in our hearts and our minds, as well as our deeds, and to live for him 
and to know his comfort and the hope that is in him alone. Let me pray, and then the men will hand out the element. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your testimony to who you are. Christ, thank you that you are indeed a sovereign Savior, a trustworthy Lord, that you are true, Lord. Everything else in this world, nothing else in this world can that, can that be said of. You alone can be trusted as absolute truth. Every, every word on the pages of Scripture has divine authority and glory in it. And we can stand on it. May it do its work in us. May it do its work in this world as you give us opportunity to witness in bringing salvation. And may it do its work in us as your church, molding and shaping and renewing, encouraging, comforting, convicting, instructing, teaching and training us in righteousness for your sake and for your glory and for our joy. And remind us of these things as we come to your table. In your name, Jesus, amen.